0: For me, like a senior engineer, first and foremost, um, and this you can call this a my backend bias, which I think is partly fair but not entirely. It's rooted in production, right? It's 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 for their instincts. You know, I I, I want to be able to trust their instincts, which means that their their little data corpus needs to be trained on reality, <laughs> which means production, right? Like I, I don't think I don't see anyone can call themselves a senior engineer if they don't know what happens to their code after they hit merge.
1: Welcome to the Software Misadventures podcast, where we sit down with software and DevOps experts to hear their stories from the trenches about how software breaks in production. We are your hosts, Ronak, Austin, and Guang. We've seen firsthand how stressful it is when something breaks in production, but it's the best opportunity to learn about a system more deeply. When most of us started in this field, we didn't really know what to expect and wish there were more resources on how veteran engineers overcame the daunting task of debugging complex systems. In these conversations, we discuss the principles and practical tips to build resilient software, as well as advice to grow as technical leaders. Hey everyone, this is Ronak here. Our guest in this episode is Charity Majors. Charity is the co-founder and CTO of Honeycomb.io. Guang and I had a lot of fun speaking with her. We learned about her journey from being an engineer to co-founding Honeycomb, We talk about what it was like being on-call when she was only 17 and how to stay calm during production incidents. We discuss various production outages throughout the episode and our favorite one involved having to drive to a data center to flip a db switch. Charity also shares what it takes to build an awesome engineering culture, the engineer-manager pendulum, and qualities Charity looks for when hiring senior engineers. There was much real talk in this episode and we really appreciate Charity for sharing her honest thoughts with us. Please enjoy this super educational and highly entertaining conversation with Charity Majors. All right, uh, Charity, uh, super excited to talk to you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So one of the things uh, we wanted to start with is uh, we read somewhere you went on call when you were 17 or you started going on call at the age of 17. So I have two questions there. What was this first job and how did you get it? <laughs> and what was it like to be on call at that age? Uh,
0: it was fine. I mean when you're young you literally don't know any better. They can do anything to you and you're like, yeah, this is just how the world works. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, it was I was assistant min for my university. Uh, I don't know if they still do this, but back in those days they just gave students root. <laughs> 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 and uh, I I my first I think my very first job was running the math stat department computers. Mm. And from there, I moved up to running all of the university's computers. And then later, I ran the CS department computers um, and in between there, I worked for like a, a local web development firm running their computers. And all before I ever owned a computer of my own. <laughs> oh, wow.
1: Uh, and I also heard that you, I think you were studying music and then you also studied electrical engineering. So it, it you weren't studying... Oh, study... dude,
0: I also studied ancient Greek and Latin oh, wow. and, uh, you know, literature. I, I really, I, I was diagnosed last year with ADHD. So... You know, it's a belated acknowledgement of my life story. <laughs> uh,
1: so when you were on this job managing these computers, did you pick things up along the way? Or first of all, did they interview you for the job? Uh, I- I'm curious.
0: Um, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Um, now, the honest, the honest truth is... Um, in, uh, a dear friend of mine had been the math stat department's computer mm-hmm. assistant in first he was graduating they asked him who he recommended um, and he told them that if they hired me he would back me up mm-hmm. and anytime I didn't know something mm-hmm. he would help me out so I owe a huge debt of gratitude <laughs> to this friend <laughs> who just kind of like randomly saw me struggling and was like she could use a hand oh,
1: so <clears throat> that that is very sweet uh, so yeah. When you were on this first job, uh, as you mentioned, you're managing all these computers uh, and you had Root and you said every other student And I had-
0: knew nothing. Let's be clear. I knew <laughs> jack, jack shit. <laughs> uh,
1: I, I, do you remember something that happened you wish hadn't happened?
0: <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> I don't know man like every like every day is is a new horror when you work with computers it's you know it's it's you never know what you're doing you know and and I I I mean I think that the the most of these stories have in common is you know so yeah like the hard drive story like I I had never used hardware I had never owned a computer right from from my perspective there were things that I SSH'd in from the terminal in my dorm basement right and and being faced with hardware is Fucking (laughs) terrified. It's It's terrifying. Um, And and then, you know, there's the time when, you know, I'm I'm working at the little web development shop and, you know, their custom software goes down. It's called like InfoArc or something. And like the old system had gone and nobody knew where it was deployed. And, 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 you know, all of these stories end with just like people just like looking at me, expecting me to help, and me being (laughs) at least as lost as them. And just kind of going, well, somebody's got to do it. And, you know, and, and I guess the, the, the thing that I learned from all of them is just like, nobody knows what the hell they're doing. Yeah. And and a, a great key to success in life is just to be willing to be the person that they can rely on to figure it out.
1: Oh, yeah. Th- that is well said for sure. Uh, so moving on to some of the writing part, uh, I think I came across your blog and there are some really good articles. Uh, at least I've learned a lot from them. One of the things that, also i found interesting was the uh, domain of your personal website it's charity.wtf i'm, I'm curious yes, this
0: is that the best <laughs> tld ever it, it, it is
1: it is it certainly is How does and
0: everyone not have this
1: <laughs> so i think the first time i saw that tld was on your website um, and i was like oh that's yes. really interesting uh, i'm sure the content <laughs> is also super interesting which which, which it is uh i'm okay. curious what prompted that tld was it in response to something, I like,
0: saw it and I okay. knew it. It had to be mine.
1: <laughs> Makes sense. Uh, so you've been—you're the co-founder and CTO of Honeycomb, and uh, I read somewhere that you've always liked to be more on the side of let's do stuff. Uh, you mentioned somewhere that. You you want you've been the person who uh, is always a person where if someone has an idea, I'll make it work for you and we'll run this thing. Yeah,
0: I've never been an ideas person. I've never been an ideas person. I've always been a person who, like, if it's worth doing, like, I could. I'm an implementer, right? Like that's that's where my heart is. I love optimizing. I like performance tuning. I like figuring it out. I don't even like writing software. <laughs> I like understanding it. You know, I, I like making it better. I it, which is why it's very. It's you know. I, I've never been one of those kids who's like, I'm gonna start a company someday. Like I really kind of loathe the whole founder industrial complex room and just like, oh my God, you started something. You must be so much better than you no. Know, honestly, you know, whenever I see a founder with a C level title now, hmm. I like internally roll my eyes and go, ha, you didn't deserve that shit either. You just gave it to yourself. <laughs> nobody nobody thought you deserved that but you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: the, the, sorry where were we <laughs> uh, no no that's okay uh, what, what I was trying to ask is uh, this is something that I wondered uh, like, as a CTO what does the role of a CTO look like like what what does it typical whatever
0: the like? hell you want it to be literally there mm-hmm. isn't <laughs> like I, I mean and, and this is true for this is not true for every C-level role and this is more true for the CTO role than I think any other C-level role that I've ever seen uh, because um you know I, I will say that there is kind of a broad differentiation between you know ctos who grow up with the company who you know they've founded it and and you know versus the ones who are hired in the ones who are hired in i think have a bit more of a template but it, and it's just i think it's a reflection of the fact that you know every company is a technology company these days but what that looks like and what the needs of the company are for the person in that role are so different. Like for for some companies, you know, it's like the person who writes all the hardest code, you know, and, and all this stuff. And 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 I think that that's 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 losing favor because I think you know it kind of inevitably has to become more of a organizational and visionary and people role and a little bit higher up the stack and everything. Um, but still, it can be it can be you know like the person who is intently involved in like the what's the next generation for this company's, you know, needs and like they'll figure out all the things that will actually make it work and file the patents and everything. Uh or it can be, you know, a largely ceremonial role like like mine, where I'm just like giving talks and like, you know, do bullshit that like I can I can't even remember the last time I had such a little machine, which makes me feel so very sad. <laughs> um and and it's like it's almost a marketing role there, right? Where where it's an education and it's about you know, and honestly, the reason that my role as CTO is so outward focused—going to brag a little—because we have our shit together. <laughs> There's literally nothing for me to do on my engineering board because it runs like it's—they're—they're it, they're so good and they're so tight. And and my, you know, and this this has been a, you know, a, a, a this has been a process like everything. But um, I think that your role as a leader is always to do whatever needs to be done, um, and it's always to look for. You know, your team, your team's job is to execute on the incredibly full plate that they have in front of them. And your job is to be looking ahead at what's next. Like, how do we get more customers? And, and for us, for Honeycomb, you know, so much of our success is going to be tied to can the world get better at writing software? Because most teams can't really make effective use of Honeycomb fully. You know, because they aren't doing continuous delivery of So I'm totally focused right now on trying to help everyone else, you know, get like a decade farther along in their journey to writing better software. Because sorry, we were talking about CTO and I'm just like off and running in a whole that's different direction. Okay. It's you know, I don't think there's I don't think there's any one way to do it, but I that's not the same thing as saying that there's no wrong way to do it. There are many wrong ways to do it. <laughs> many, many, probably, way more wrong ways to do it than right ways to do it. Um, it's just that there's no general answer.
2: Hmm. I I am curious the um sort of the, that what that progression looked like, right? Because I imagine in the early days, both you and your co-founder, y'all were both technical, pretty you know, head down, just like building it out.
0: Well, I I was CEO for the first three and a half years. Interesting. And uh, Christine and I just swapped places about a year year and a half ago
2: i see and how, how what has that been like
0: oh way better oh my god i got the greatest <laughs> i really won that trade uh ceo is the worst fucking job in the world <laughs> i hated every second of it i think i cried every year for every day for almost two years um
2: what made it so tough is it just like so many things that you never knew how to do and um, you have to learn on the job or
0: there, there's the answer is many things, but I think two really stand out for me personally. Um, first of all, I found it really, really, really emotionally challenging to give up or self- sacrifice some of my <laughs> cherished identity as a technical person, be a person in a lead technical role, and and to watch my team like being tasked with solving those problems and have it be my job to go deal with lawyers and rent and and hiring sales people, you know, and, and it just really fucked with me. I had nightmares. I had about being unemployable about how nobody would ever hire me again to do anything but PM work about how there'd be this gap in the resume. And like I would fall behind the rest of the world. And, and like, none of this stuff is rational, but it was all like very bubbly in my sub- subconscious and it made me very unhappy. Um, and secondly, <sighs> Well, maybe there's three things. Secondly, um, you know, it it is this just ultimate stress of if the company fails, it's your fault. Um, You can't share that burden with anyone. Um, And no one really understands it. And you're kind of getting the shit kicked out of you all the time because all the problems come to you. Like you're never never able to spend time doing things that are working well. It is your job to spend 100% of your time on the most... Fucked up shit, and you can really lose perspective about overall health. And, and like, honeycomb was starting to look like a success story. I will remind you, for the, for the first three and a half or four years, we were like skin of our teeth surviving, like just beating the odds every year. And everybody, I, every year, I was just like, we're, we haven't failed yet. Like this, this will be the year. I, I'm just, I know this is the year when we fail. Like I just believed that from the day, and and, and most other people did too. I think and and so that was on me like that was my fault I had dragged so many of these beautiful people who I love so much off to do this failed (laughs) crazy thing with me and I was responsible they could have been making like three times as much money they could have all these things and instead they were leading me they were following me and I was leading them off this cliff um and all right the third thing that was difficult was that uh I had to be traveling 50 percent of the time and so I was never doing a bigger job. And honestly, the other thing, like five things I realized, but like this <laughs> might have been the biggest thing, was that I'm just not temperamentally suited for that role. And, and this has been a real – it's kind of a painful journey of self-discovery and self-knowledge, but um, I – like, i don't know if you you're familiar with like the four tendencies which is like what motivates you deeply oh, there's there's like external expectations for you that what everyone else expects of you and there's the internal expectations and goals you set for yourself and a lot of what defines you personally is how do you respond to those motivations um and you know christine is is like the upholder type where she gets off. I'm like, if someone else has a goal for her, she will fucking hit it and feel great about herself. If she has a goal for herself, she will fucking check that thing off and feel great about herself. She is like the ultimate, like checklist maker, structured person, loves all this stuff. I am the literal opposite of that. I am the type that rejects <laughs> external <laughs> expectations of me, what's exactly the opposite of them, and also psychologically tricky, but rejects, rejects and resists my own expectations of myself. As soon as I set a goal for myself, it's the last thing I'm gonna do. You know, and I think it is very challenging for my personality type to be in the CEO role because I think companies like small children d- depend and thrive on structure and predictability and, you know, showing up at the same time, at the same place every day for, you know, and, and I just I was doing a constant doing just like deep psychological warfare with myself for three and a half years to try and fit into that box
2: interesting and was there like an aha moment where you were like shit you know it's time to try something else and then uh, no I got that. so
0: deep in it that you know it was <clears throat> the choice was made for me um, and it was the right choice because uh, I was so um, unhappy and and just like but I get so fucking stubborn <laughs> I, the harder I'm feeling, the, the more, the more I dig it, I, I do not know how to quit. And I do not say that to brag. And it's, it's ultimately it's not a good thing if you don't know how to quit. Uh, but you know, it, it, it worked out the way it worked out. Uh, things have stabilized since then they're better. Uh, we wouldn't have survived if I hadn't been CEO for the first three and a half years. And we, I don't think we would have survived if, if we hadn't done the switch when we did. So yeah,
1: Thank thank you for sharing that uh, and being so open about it. I, I, I don't think it's easy to talk about this. Uh,
0: it's a pathology of my personality, I think. No, we, no I, it, it's not actually. I was raised not talking about, not sharing feelings and all this stuff. And it's been like part of my self work as an adult has been like overcoming that. And some would say that I have overcompensated. So
1: here we are. <laughs> Well uh, there's so much to unpack when in what you shared uh, and I'm, I'm, I want to come back to some of those things but one thing which you touched on just now is that you identify that you are you are very stubborn uh, I'm curious has in in which situations has it served you really well? Uh, you, you mentioned that you wish you weren't that stubborn in some cases but in what cases you're like yes th- this characteristic of mine helped so much.
0: Oh, I'm ultimately unstoppable if I want to do something.
1: <laughs> well, that's
0: pretty awesome. It's a of caution because i will I will do it. Um, damn the consequences and the side effects and everything. It's not necessarily a great personality. but I, you know I, I, I'm a woman in tech and and you know, and, and it has kept me here. and, and in fact, my, the the the, the aspect of my personality that thrives that feeds is fueled almost solely by fuck you that's not been a bad thing for me like the more people tell me to get out of check the more stubbornly <laughs> i am here right like i feed off that shit it's great so yeah tell me i'm gonna fail to do it <laughs>
2: <laughs> well
1: at this point uh honeycomb is succeeding so and congratulations on the recent series V round that you just did thank uh, you i'm curious how involved are you in uh fundraising as a cto as
0: involved as i want to be okay that's the amazing thing about C- being not ceo you get to pick and choose what the fuck you want to do
1: <laughs> that, that sounds like freedom
0: <laughs> <laughs> it really is uh,
1: so ch- changing uh subject a little bit i was reading one of the interviews and uh i want to read a small part of the answer that you said i want to uh, and want to follow that up with a question so one part where you read was oh you said was I'm really good at firefighting and staying cool in the middle of a crisis. I never panic or freak out and make bad decisions under extreme p- pressure. That is an incredible skill. Uh, it doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. Well, not to me for sure. So I- I'm curious, how did you develop that skill? Or
0: So honestly, last year I was diagnosed with ADHD. I know, the world's least surprising diagnosis. Um, it was to me, it was a, i had never considered the fact that i might have an attention uh disorder um but apparently that's kind of it's one of the side effects is like your brain is so just like buzzing all around but when you would you give it adrenaline or crystal mess <laughs> or adderall uh it it slows down and it can focus so i can't really take any credit at all for it it's it's just kind of a byproduct of my psych- psychology but yeah like the moments that I, I remember feeling like the most alive are the ones when besides dad, if I don't fix it, the company will go under and there's no one else who can do it. And I just got, I just like go to my happy place. and I'm just like, <laughs> cool. And it's just like, I could focus. And I just like, I, you can't stop me. I, it, it's, it's wonderful. And I, and I, I, I love those moments and I know that's terrible, um, but they're wonderful.
1: It's amazing that, the, the entire team can rely on you to be so calm and stable in those moments. Uh, so for people uh, who are...
0: It'd be great if they could rely on me to be calm and stable in all the other moments.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> nice. uh, what, what, what I was going to ask is, uh, for folks who are kind of dipping their toes in the operational journey and who have been on call but haven't seen many outages yet and who are still learning... To maintain their composure in these kind of moments yeah. where there is too much pressure, uh, how, how do you recommend they develop that skill?
0: Oh, that's such a great question. Because first of all, although I do think this is like this is to some extent biologically, you know, determined, I also think that it is entirely a learnable skill. Like I, I have seen, I'm sure that I have improved at it, you know, just by being, you know, doing it so many times. And I've seen other people just dramatically. I've seen, you know, interns come in who just like, my friend Jeff Wad, who you work with, although you've never met, uh, has these great stories about being an intern, just like freezing, you know, I um, he's you know, yes, it is a learnable skill. And I think it's a great skill to learn because when, when, when your adrenaline is, is pumping, it generally makes people make way worse decisions. And the worst thing you want to do in the middle of a crisis is have two crises <laughs> or make it worse. Right. And so, yeah, like I think that you know, training yourself to like not react is the first thing, like, right? Like adrenaline spikes, and and our our little lizard brain is just like, ah, I must jump, I must react, I must do something. And just training yourself to like whew, stop, take a breath, take two. Nothing is going to <laughs> you're, the chances of you uh, making the situation worse by not doing something in five seconds are are very small, and the. Them, and the chances you can make them way, uh, way worse or way higher, right? So like, just take a few seconds and like deep breathe, deep deep breaths until you, you feel your pulse kind of return. And and also like, take control of the environment around you. If people, if the reason you're freaking out is because everyone around you is freaking out, like we're kind of herd animals, it's going to be incredibly hard to keep your head if if people are just like ah 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 or just like over your shoulder. Like if people are like if people are causing other people to become tense, just like you know, take control of the situation, Say, you know, speak in a, in a, in a slow, calm voice, you know, let's, let's sit down, let's take a breath, let's think about what's going on. Can we have a moment of silence, and two or three deep breaths, <laughs> you know, and, and, and then you know, regulate your voice. Um, it, 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 we, we respond to feedback loops, right? And so when you're in the middle of a feedback loop that is winding people up, that your job is to consciously take control of the situation and and start a feedback loop that winds people back down, right? Gets them back to their normal selves. So anything you do to kind of slow, dampen, modulate uh, is is really going to have an impact well beyond you. And here's the thing: it's it works even if you fake it. <laughs> it works one thousand percent as well if you're faking it and your heart is beating the entire time. So.
1: Well, humans are great at tricking themselves, and uh, th- this is such yes. great advice. Uh, I've actually seen a lot of seasoned uh, engineers who, when there is an outage, and everyone is kind of like, "Oh, this might be the," hype. everyone is just trying to help and share hypotheses. It
0: might be the end of days. What if we can't get the data <laughs> back? You know, and they're just yeah, like, yeah. "Okay," and you and you hear them t- s- settle into this tone of voice that's like they're at a kindergarten, right? Just like, "Okay." Let's take a look at this. Yes, <laughs> I think you know, This is an interesting question. What did you, see? you know, and and, and just like very slow and and, and yeah. yeah. I mean, think of imagine like if you like cosplay or whatever, slip into the role of a fireman, right? Who just like arrived at the scene, just been like, okay, what what's going on here? You know, is it is today a good day to die? Today is a great day to die. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Um uh, I when I, I remember when I had my first outage, I was still shadowing someone as an on-call. And uh the person I was shadowing was a seasoned engineer and he had lots of experience with dealing with incidents. And when things broke, it was Saturday, 6 a.m. in the morning and I freaked out out of bed saying, What the hell just happened? Um uh, and when we got on Slack, we got on a call and this person was like, okay, let's look at these logs. Let's do X, Y, and Z. And I was like, how can you be so calm right now? when I'm just freaking out thinking it's not working. It's not working. We need to get this back up. Uh, but over time, I have realized just, you know, taking that breath or two is an incredibly helpful thing uh talking about crisis we love discussing war stories or production outages and <laughs> uh, on the show and uh, i want to lead with one so i was listening to one of the podcasts that you were on and you mentioned at some point in your career you had to drive to a colo and flip a db switch uh what, what happened
0: oh this is very this is routine this is just like you know <laughs> another saturday night uh I, I did this for, for years, you know, I, I worked at like a, a remote hosting company, but this is in the days before we had like remote hand software. Um, there was during the day, there was a guy sitting in the colo who would do this, but if it happened after hours, well, that was on, that was on <laughs> us to like call a cab, go to the colo, do this. Um, or, you know, when I was at Lab for four years, we, you know, we had our own, our own colo space with, you know, with racks of machines and uh, you know, something went down. We 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 schedule like a monthly trip to the Colo to do. You know, we didn't go down there every time there was a hardware problem, but we had some points of failure, like the primary MySQL uh, server, for which yeah, if it went down, you know, day or night, we just had to go down there and flip the switch. Wow. I I I will never <laughs> again touch a server. And sometimes when I think <laughs> the world's just going to shit, I just I just think about that and go, you know
1: not all bad yeah there were days when you had to drive to a colo. it's it's much better with the cloud these days uh someone else has oh to do God. that
0: <laughs> someone else says yeah, yeah. yeah uh
1: so talk talking about MySQL and some of the outages uh, i you have been or honeycomb as a company has been really open about sharing incident reports i read i think you wrote the first major outage incident report on your blog, which was amazing. Yeah. Uh, when I read that, I was like, oh, that is so cool uh, that that you're willing to share and talk about this. Okay.
0: I've, my entire career, I've been so, I've chafed at like what I've been instructed to say, you know, publicly about our, our you know, outages. And, and I just remember like having to, you know, be vetted by the CTO and the CEO and they'd go over it and just like, you know, wordsmith and. Oh, we can't say this. We can't mention the vendor's name and all this shit. And so, you know, when we had honeycomb, we're like, aha, finally, (laughs) I get to fuck this up my own way. (laughs) So I have never proofread a single postmortem. I trust my team. They do stellar work. I wouldn't, and I'm always like, more detail. Like, the more I have learned so much from like AWS's postmortems, fucking phenomenal. And the thing is that, like, all I think everyone who's editing or, you know, doing the, the micromanaging thing is, is doing their own teams a disservice because nothing builds confidence with other engineers like just being assuming you're not doing dumb shit. Just like on the regular, nothing builds confidence by just like just being transparent and telling them exactly what went wrong.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, uh, it builds trust with uh, people so much. Uh, how, how has it helped you in hiring? I, I know I'm digressing a little bit, but uh... no,
0: it's been it's been tremendously helpful with us in hiring. You know, it's it's hard for me to tease that out from, you know, honeycomb. I'm I'm gonna brag for a minute here. Too, oh, go for it. it. We have never had a problem with hiring. And and this is in the moment when an industry like our VCs tell us every time every time we have a board meeting, they're like, are you guys able to hire or keep up? And we're always like, Yeah, not a problem, man. We've never had any recruiters. Um the only the only thing we engage recruiter for, I think, was our um, our sales VP. Um, um but I, I think that people are drawn to Honeycomb because we try to practice a lot of humility <laughs> and, and, and we would rather, there, there are a lot of things that we're just angry about in the tech industry and so we don't do them. We do them differently and then we talk about them and we don't claim to be perfect. We are not perfect. And I think that sometimes people come to Honeycomb and they're disappointed because it's not perfect. Um, but... I can guarantee that we will be transparent and we will fail differently.
1: well, it, it's amazing. Uh, so coming back to some of the crisis again uh, well I should stop saying crisis <laughs> uh, so apart- the shit
0: storms <laughs> shit- the trash fires yeah the dumpster heat oh yes <laughs>
1: <laughs> all those are much better than just the word crisis uh, anyway yeah. so are, are there any other outages or war stories that you could share with <laughs> us. <laughs>
0: Yes. Oh. Um, absolutely. Uh, would you like me to open my uh, mental file, uh, marked MongoDB, for a while? Oh yes, please. Uh, go put it. <laughs> so when Honey when Honeycomb started out, it was it was you know in the early days of MongoDB, there was just one lock per replica set, um, <laughs> and uh, it, it, and we were a massively multi tenant system, right? Like we had sixty thousand mobile apps. Um, after, you know, a couple of years, over a million by the time I left one lock, they're all, you know, trading for, and, and, you know, the sharding stuff didn't work for us because sharding works really well when, you know, you have big data sets, you can, you can stripe across shards, What we had was lots and lots of little ones. And, and so like the hotspot, the problems were manifest, um, that said, and he, like, Parse would never have existed as a company if it wasn't for MongoDB. So I will, I will give them some credit. Like, they, they were definitely on to some stuff. Um, and side note, product marketing, I believe, is the reason that MongoDB is still alive as a company. It, it, the marketing, the community building, um, it, it bought them time for the technology to grow up to fulfill its promise. Um I still have the t-shirt that says MongoDB is web scale. So like, let's not forget they're catastrophic <laughs> first first decade or so. Um, yeah. So like, let's see well, the, the, the kinds of outages that we had, you know, someone, someone's app would hit the, um, the iTunes um, top five and, and it would take us down immediately. And then we'd have to go figure out what was wrong. Um, God, it's almost hard to come up with like there were there are the ones where like we, we hit the uh, replication bug. Hmm. Uh, oh, <laughs> sorry. I'm just like, That's okay. Oh God, past traumas. Oh, Here, here's a story about my sequel. I, I think maybe the MongoDB stuff is a little, still a little too fresh and I'm processed. <laughs> um, uh, so at Linda lab, we used MySQL for all of our, you know, all of our user data and we tried upgrading from 4.1 to, to 5.0, and we'd been running on 5.0 for all of the secondaries for an entire year. And we had done all of the, you know, benchmarking and, and the, you know, sysbench and all this stuff. All of the benchmarks showed that definitely My, MySQL 5.5 5 was going to be way faster than 4.1, and so we flipped the switch, and the entire world went down. Oh
1: wow! <laughs> what, what happened?
0: And you know, we kinda of got it back up, it was limping along, you know, and then finally realized it for whatever reason, it was not faster for our workload. So we had to because there was no backwards you couldn't do backwards migration on the data, so we had to roll the world back for a day or two oh, wow. and bring it up on the old four point one primary, go back all the secondary. It was it was oh my God, it was so painful. And so my job after this catastrophe, um, was to figure out why and make it safe. Um, and I spent almost a year, uh, you know, I wrote some, some software to like a capture replay so I could capture 24 hours worth of traffic and then replay it at various speeds, Mm -hmm. you know, using a bunch of clients and all this stuff. And then, you know, so, okay, I, I validated that for whatever, you know, for our workload, it was actually like, (laughs) <laughs> it was actually 1.4 times slower, oh, wow. not, you know, not a um, 20% faster. Um, and then started, you know, I, uh, this is around the time that, you know, Mark Callahan and, and the team at, on MySQL at Google published the NoDB, um patches that will let you bind to, to more, more than one core and a bunch of the state. So, like, I upgraded the Percona MySQL and I tweaked with those things and bought, so I so got it up to about parity, um, and did some other stuff with the disk and whatnot, um, uh, whatever, and and finally got it to a point where, um, you know, I, I was like, yes, this. Oh, we, we fixed queries that were, you know, the the the, the query planner. Query planner had some bugs. Uh, we isolated some queries that were underperforming. We wrote them. Um, and a year later, I'm like, yes, I guarantee you, this 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 will work. Um, it will it will. Um, it, it will be faster. Um, and so we flipped and it did <laughs> only a year worth of work. And and, it, and of course the reward is nothing happened. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh. and I'm like, yes. And everybody else is like, what? Oh. Um, and, and then of course the, the, the part of the story that puts the cherry on it is, and six months later, we got SSDs. <laughs> and all of my work was totally pointless if we had just waited and just done the SSDs. Oh, yeah. So, ops work. <laughs>
1: yeah, and what do you mention about the migrations and nothing happened? It's, it's amazing, right? Like, migrations that don't make any noise are one of the best migrations. But then they get talked about so rarely because, well, no one knows a migration happened. Uh, yeah.
0: Well, you know, and the thing is, the difference now, and this was like a decade ago, right? And the difference is that now... You know, it's because it's time I wrote this big long blog post, and and, and it was great. I wish I could find it. It's, it's been destroyed. Maybe it's the back Machine. But there was no community then. To you know, there wasn't really the Twitter community. There wasn't really the, you know. And I feel like we're getting better at this. You know, I feel like we're getting better at sharing, you know, more widely the the the, the story of the things that went well, so we can learn from each other there, and you know, reusing some of that work. Because also all that year of work that I put into my sequel, also, you know. It all like went poof because there was no, you know. I tried to get someone interested in taking over the tools. I couldn't maintain it. I moved jobs shortly after that. Um, but yeah, and this, but I feel like this is a, this is, a, this is a, obviously a trainable skill because we have all learned to be like ecstatic when it's quiet, right? Or like, yeah, this is amazing. <laughs> um, and so, like, so many things, like, it's, it's just a question of being conscious and aware of it and then choosing what you celebrate and choosing what you, you know, what you value and, and like your body's, your body's internal reward systems, like dopamine and all this stuff, like they catch up as long as, as long as you do that. So I think this is, I kind of love that we are the, we are the, we're kind of the <laughs> the contrary engineers. We celebrate when everyone else is, is, is quiet and, and we're quiet when everyone else is celebrating. Oh, so yeah. I like that about us. Yeah.
1: Like the red diffs, not the green ones.
0: <laughs> exactly. Red diffs are the best diffs.
1: Uh, so, I was reading one of the incident reports published on the Honeycomb blog post, and uh, in one of the uh, paragraphs, it was mentioned that uh, Honeycomb does like burn rate-based alerts or kind of SLO burns. Mm-hmm. So, for so for our listeners who might not be completely aware of burn rate, can you like briefly describe what a burn rate is?
0: Yeah. Uh, it's that thing that makes you only get paged in the middle of the night if it's really important. <laughs> it's that thing that makes you able to do most of your engineering work during the day instead of at 2 a.m. Uh, so I think the SLOs, um, bird-based alerts are, it's kind of the next, seeing a lot of interest, like it is it is one of those things where you kind of do have to be this tall to ride this ride. If you just, if you have a, like an org where, you know, everything's just a mess, it's not going to do any good, it's not going to help. It's not where you should spend your time, but if if things are working pretty well, um, you know, but you just have a, a large and noisy, you know, system like many of us do, it's a really impactful way to invest in engineering effort and get back a lot of, um, a lot lower frustration, you know, higher time, time invested value. So what it is, is, is just the concept of, um, you don't page about symptoms, like, oh, this disk fired, you know, oh, this CPU, like, Fuck a CPU alert! No one should ever, <laughs> ever have to think about a CPU alert ever again. Turn them off. They're worse than useless. They're literally worse than useless. They're burning people out and not doing any good. But but like, there's also the the next generation of like like individual nodes that go down in a system behind the load balancer. You shouldn't we have to give a shit about that at two a.m. It, it, you know, there are two categories of things that can go wrong. There's the things where. It's perfectly fine for it to wait till morning and then there's the things where either users are currently being impacted or they will soon right um, or users are currently being impacted let's stick with that right you shouldn't actually page anyone about users are going to be impacted soon you should page when they're impacted now um but but like when your systems are well architected enough that you're you're kind of in this zone just moving to a, a, a state where nothing pages anyone out of hours unless it is you know, you're in a state where you're burning your budget, right? You've got your, your SLO for your company, which is we think it's pretty much fine if 99.9% of the time people are getting an okay, right? Uh, well, if that if that's 99.8, uh, I don't think I want to know about that until morning, <laughs> right? But if it's 60%, yeah, I'd like to know about that now, <laughs> and you know, and if it's you know if it's you know 98. Well, I don't know. That's up to you. You know, um, how long can can you go with an elevated error rate before someone should investigate it? But it's so much more. You know, it's a way of like stepping back from the the front lines of the firefighting and being like, all right, we've grown up a little bit. We we're now dealing with thresholds, not up or down. We're now dealing with gray areas, right? Yeah,
1: makes sense. Uh, it reminds me of one of the things that you said: uh, nines don't matter if. Users are not happy. Not happy. Yeah, uh, it was so much truth in that. Uh, how, how, what prompted this, by the way? This this particular statement.
0: It just a random thing that came out of my mouth one day, and I wrote it down and uh, and I and I put it on my slide at um, uh, which conference was that? It was the one that's in like well, Red State. i not sorry. Don't think So strangely strangely oh, sorry nice yeah um yeah and and you know it did it struck a chord with someone uh, this is the, one of the proudest moments of my life was that year at um at srecon mm-hmm. every single presenter had that quote on their slide oh nice it was, it was like a awesome a full bingo card <laughs> like every single one of them had that quote in their slide and i was just like oh. i don't think anything is ever going to top this career moment for me Oh,
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think it should be a banner in front of or on every office.
0: On, on I also made a bunch of like stickers with like rainbows and hearts and unicorns that say nice. it and stuff. <laughs> if you guys send me your addresses, I will send you a sticker uh, like love pack. We would we would totally <laughs> love
1: that. Uh, no, that
0: goes to the hosts, not to everyone listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes, we feel special. Yes, yes.
1: Uh, uh, w- w- one quick bit on the error budgets, actually. So you mentioned like on the burn you here, seeing how soon are you going to violate the error budget on bad days one would violate the error budget so in those cases like what are some of the practices you've seen work well when you're trying to predict the next cycle and say okay these are some of the things we'll do so that we don't violate it again in the next cycle
0: um i mean this is just your reliability work right like it's like how can we perform better in a slightly degraded state Right. Like if you're you're going down every time, well, that's obviously where you start. Right. Um, But then if you're staying up, but, you know, you're losing 30 percent of all requests, you know, how can you how can you not do that? Right. How can you like, you know, do a failover more more rapidly or how can you like, you know, you know, off offload those failing queries or or, or, or retry or or something. Right. It's just it's just, just like the nuts and bolts of like what we do like resiliency is not about you know having less errors it's it's really not it's about being able to, to absorb like more error impacting events and recover from them more gracefully and with less human intervention
1: yeah well in, in the distributed systems world something is almost always breaking it's just that sometimes like we are aware.
0: layers of layers of fuck, there's a problem, more layers of it it's just like this is the world that we live in, and, the, and this, this is the ground upon which we stand. And there are many holes in it, and it's fine, because <laughs> together we're strong. <laughs> oh, <yeah.
2: laughs> um, changing gears a little bit, um, I think a question that every engineer asks uh, themselves at some point is, uh, do I stay you know, IC, or do I try management? Uh, that's actually how I first came uh, across your blog a few years ago. Uh, you described this engineer management uh, sort of pendulum. Can you yeah. tell us more about that?
0: Yeah. That's the most popular blog post that I've ever written. Um, I, I like it. I love that people are still coming up to me years later and be like, oh, that really, and and, and and it makes me really happy because I think we're really ripe for sort of a reimagining of the relationship between engineering and management. Um, yeah, I, I I just I firmly believe that you know the best engineering leaders that I've ever worked with or known or learned from all the people who've spent some time in management but don't like go there and stay, <laughs> right? They go back and forth a few times over the course of their career. And I started thinking about it and I was like, you know, the best managers that I've ever worked with, the best line managers in the world, I think are never really more than three, four, five years removed from doing real hands-on work themselves. Um, like there's, a, there's an intimacy with the familiarity with the subject knowledge that you just can't fake. You know, and I think that as much as as much as some people love to proclaim that it's great when they have a non-technical manager who just like gives them the keys of the kingdom and never criticizes or has an opinion about their technical work. To me, that's not a great thing. (laughs) You know, it's not a great thing. It's not a thing to brag about. It's not a great thing. It's a great thing to have engineering managers who, you know, don't own the decisions, but who have good taste and good judgment and and can help groom and suggest and, and, and help you grow. And that's something that you know. I think that I think that there's really two. If you want to go into management, you can do one of two things. You you should either go in it and decide to climb the ranks, or you should go into management and then go back and forth a couple of times. Because otherwise, you lose your edge, and you're not as effective for the people that you support and you serve. Um, And likewise, on the other side, like the best senior engineering leaders, the 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 ones with the most, you know, the most empathy, the most, the best the best sense of how to motivate people and inspire them the best sense of like how to take this massive project and break it down into sub projects that somehow for everyone on the team gives them something that challenges them. It doesn't overwhelm them. You know, that's like something that will push their boundaries, but not, you know, so much that they, that they stall. Um, like that is an art form and a human form just, just as much as it is a technical thing. And, and, all of those engineering leaders, even the RICs, ICs, they've spent some time in management, right? They spent some time where it was their job to do nothing but think about the human interaction parts and and how to connect, you know, our engineering work to the business side. Um, and like, I I just I think that I think that I also think it builds so much empathy for for among engineers who have spent a little bit of time as man. It demystifies it, right? It, it when you haven't done it, it's kind of like. You're just like you're waiting to be tapped for the promotion or the opportunity to move up to be better than your peers and all this shit. After you've done it once, you're like, oh, this is just a different pile of shit. You don't actually have that much power, you know. You, it, it's just different, and it's just like the glow vanishes from it, and you have so much more empathy for your own manager who's like stuck, like pressed between two between the little shits like you below and like their manager and they're just trying to do the best they can and you know you just like oh yeah you poor guy <laughs> so i'm a, i'm just a big believer in you know try it if you have it's also it's nothing but a collection of skills and and practices if you have broken down and done through, through many different configurations right and so even if you don't try being a manager with a title i think you should learn some of those managerial skills ask Go to your, your manager and ask, what 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 can you delegate to me If your managerial skills? Can I run meetings for a quarter? Something like meeting running, I shit you not, is like one of the most underappreciated, undervalued skills. It's So much time is wasted for people just sitting in meetings that are not run by somebody who knows what the fuck they're doing. And it frustrates everyone and nobody really understands why. But it's just like those grains of sand that kind of gum up the works, you know, in the course of your workday. So, yeah, learn some of those skills
2: um yeah what what i really took away from that i think is the empathy aspect that you talked about i think you really can tell like as an engineer when the um when the manager is empathetic like they've gone mm-hmm. through it and then they understand how these things work versus when they're just kind of indifferent where they don't know what the hell's going on so they're just relying on you know whatever you come up with they should be and they should that's like, a on huge difference.
0: like i i believe that managers who don't They should be on call if they can. If they can't, they should regularly pinch hit, including overnights and weekends, or else they don't deserve to be called themselves managers. Because (laughs) if you're asking someone else to wake up on behalf of the company, you'll be the first to jump off that cliff.
2: I'm going to need to quote you on that uh, at some point. Um, Very nice. So... So and also, I really like this uh, series on your blog post uh, called "Questionable Advice," where it's like a advice column, um, and you know where you show like the emails you have got asking for advice, and you know you write about like what you would actually tell them. So, so first of all, what what makes a good question? You know, I you must get a ton of emails, and I really want to know how I can make my email one day like stand out and you know get featured on your blog.
0: It's just something that makes my mind just sort you know start start spinning. I, and I, and I usually, like, write back to them first, and then it, I, I respond to almost all questions that I get. So, seriously, if, if you want to ask me a question, just DM me, and, and I will respond to pretty much all of them. It's mostly the ones where I was just like, oh, that that's kind of a good answer or something. Or, just, or, or if it's just, like, a really common one, and I'm like, ah, I can put this on my blog, and then fewer people will ask me this. Um, but, yeah, I, I encourage all questions. I, I'm very... I I respond to pretty much everybody, but, but honestly, like another, another thing that uh, does like really grab is just when the person is clearly in some angst or some, you know, crisis or some, you know, like this is why I also have a a, a link on my Calendly for people to sign up uh, if they want to just like have a phone call and talk about their career trajectory or, or something. I will, I have benefited so much from so many people and, in, in this industry, just like giving me their time and their advice. And, and I've been so fortunate. This is something that's been kind of weird for the past couple of years is is like someone will ask me a question, shit starts coming out of my mouth. And then I stop and I go, oh shit, I didn't know I knew that. Or oh, that's that kind of sounded good. <laughs>
1: <You know?
0: laughs> and now I'm like, oh, more people should benefit from all this fucking knowledge. And so, you know, I, to the extent that I can, yeah, you can sign up. I'll, I'll have a call with you and I will. I will just talk about what's because people don't usually reach out unless they're in some kind of like turning point in their career or they're not happy and they aren't sure what to do next. Um, And I'm happy to share at least what I, what I know.
2: Um, Must be nice. Mine usually comes out the other way, but. um,
0: Oh, that happens too. I just, I just immediately ignore it and forget about it. (laughs) (laughs) Selective hearing. (laughs) Yeah. I I
2: like it. Um. So, so a recent post in this series is titled "The Trap of the Premature Senior." I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's me at my first job." Can Can you tell us more uh, about the situation? Yeah. Sort of your
0: oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I was talking to this this kid, and and you know he is at this and this job, his first job. Been there for like two, three years, and he was like at the top of the fucking mountain. Like he, ever, you know, he was the most senior person there. He knew everything about how this system worked. He gets pulled into like all the high-level planning meetings, like you know, it just and and he's able to do less and less IC work of his own. But he, you know, it's very validating to be needed and to be wanted. And 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 he's like, I feel like you know this might not be the best thing for me, but you know, how how do I? I feel like maybe I should switch jobs. But then how can I be sure to get the same comp? How can I be sure to get the same stature? I don't want to just end up at the bottom of the totem pole, like you know. You know, doing Aaron Bois stuff. You know, low level stuff. When I've gotten used to having this very high level of influence and and you know say in what I do, and my advice to him was like, get the fuck out of there. <laughs> it is too soon for you to feel that way, honey. Like you you haven't earned it yet. You know, and it's not going to be good for you. You'll stunt your growth, right? Like the first you know five, six, seven years of your career. At least you need to be optimizing for you know your career is the single biggest greatest it is a multi-million dollar appreciating asset and you should manage it for the long run right if you get hooked on those feelings of being in charge knowing everything like being having a high salary and everything the first couple years it's not going to be good for you in a couple years so don't get used to it get out of there
2: um i think yeah like what really struck me was like the Familiarity versus like
0: We've all been there, through. man. Yeah, <laughs> We've it's, all been uh, there. Yeah, hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's so it's it yeah. feels so good. It yeah. feels <laughs> so good.
2: So one one thing that you touched on, you know, is like, you know, having worked at different places and, you know, different sort of problems, it gives you perspectives and that's yeah. sort of what makes you more senior, which I think is absolutely spot on. Um, what other aspects or skill sets do you like expect from a senior engineer, say if you're hiring yeah. for one?
0: You know, and, and i want to be clear that in that article i was like quit your job and i'm not saying that everybody has to quit their job after two or three years there are <laughs> ways, to, there are ways to, to maintain that growth within a single company by moving teams you know by by experiencing different things but but the point is just to be mindful of it right and to and optimize for that um yeah for me like a senior engineer first and foremost um and this you can call this a my back end bias, which I think is partly fair, but not entirely. It's rooted in production, right? It's 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 for their instincts, you know, I I, I wanna be able to trust their instincts, which means that their their little data corpus needs to be trained on reality, <laughs> which means production, <laughs> right? Like I, I don't think I don't feel anyone can call this as a senior engineer if they don't know what happens to their code after they hit merge. Right, like you, you need to know how How does it get out there to users and, 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 and be able to like, you know, look at it in production and say, you know, what's happening? Is it doing what I expected it to do? Does anything else look weird? And, and do some, you know, at least basic debugging. I, I think that that's table stake for, for anyone. Um, uh, I, I think that some, some knowledge of exposure to, to data modeling you know some some knowledge of you know because because code is and this is all about like what what did you know beyond the code itself right because there's there's like the data structures and algorithms but but like you know that's just step one there's also like you know what you need some, some some sense of like what data is backing this and and what the code that you're shipping is going to do to it and and where those you know edges are i think for sure is also table stakes um uh, that's mostly it, you know. I think that, I think that beyond that, it's just like, uh, I, personally, I I I like to see that someone has has been at least two jobs, you know, and and they it, 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 sometimes call this T shape, you know, that you've you've shown that you can and have gone really deep in one area, and that you have a broad understanding. Um, I like that. Uh, it's certainly benefited me. I think that my my T, I went really deep on, you know, my SQL debugging. Um, and and then later on, I was able to very quickly and and efficiently like reproduce that you know, on my on MongoDB and Cassandra because I had that that depth and context and stuff.
2: What um, what about the soft skill side? Like what? what soft the... skill
0: side? Yeah, I mean, y- 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 you 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 have to be <laughs> you can't be an asshole. You know, people can't dread having to talk to you. You know, like, you. Y- because that creates, it's like, it's like, it's like having a, you know, a, note, a a service that regularly turns requests away. Like you wouldn't accept that in your system. You can't have people that regularly just dis- warp and distort the flow of communication by causing people to avoid them. Right. Uh, I think that like, I do think that there are many archetypes for senior engineers. Some people will get very dogmatic about, you must do more mentoring than writing code as a senior engineer. I really don't think so. I, I do think that, you know, you need to be able to, uh, here, all right, here's it, here's, here's a, you must be this tall. You must be able to explain what you're doing. You must be able to explain it to people who aren't experts in it. You should be able to talk through your code. Here's the interesting thing. So at Honeycomb, we select very heavily for communication skills i would say above and beyond technical skills right if somebody can clearly and you know and and you know gracefully talk us through their solution and why they chose it and and what the trade offs were and you know what else they might have tried um, and came up with the wrong conclusion i would i would rather hire that person than a person who came to the right conclusion and and couldn't really explain why or how they got there 100% of the time Um, and, and that's actually, we've found been very, it's, it's excluded a lot of people who write great code. Um, but like, we, we won't compromise on that because it's such a part of our, of our team's culture is, is to be able to explain. And I think that leads to a greater understanding and it certainly leads to greater shared understanding for the team. So I think that that's a bare minimum for senior engineers and just to be able to clearly, you know, explain yourself and, and to, you know, be willing and, and eager and friendly to help, you know, those around you. Um, but then, you know, some some ICs get more and more and more powerful, but they they, they just grow at being, you know, masters. Of, they write tons of code very fast. Or they, you know, there there's an archetype you find mostly at large companies where they may only write five lines of code in, in the quarter, but they save the company $10 million, and no one else could have found them and wrote them, you know? Th- so there's that archetype. Uh, then there's the archetype that's much more about, much less about, you know, writing product software, product features, but it's much more about understanding and, you know, um, re, you know, the master of the migration and the re-architect to, like, get more performance out of a system on the second or third rewrite, you know? And and, and then there's the there's the type that is, is very much about coaching and mentoring and about spreading those skills and being the glue in the team. May not write much code at all, but can, like, you know, bring up all of the engineers around them. And I think all of those architects no shame in being any of them. Be who you are, who you want to be, but just be sure to find a place that needs that type from you.
2: That's well said. Um, And I want to go back to the first post of your advice column where someone asked you, um, after being a manager, can I be happy as a cog? Um, But I want to change it up a little bit and ask instead. And this is something that we touched on a little bit earlier before. It's like, after being a technical co-founder or CTO, can you be happy as a cog?
0: <laughs> I can't even... fucking wait to be a cog. I, I, I started this company. My my serious intention was to go in a corner and write Go code for two or three years because I was so exhausted and burned out. And so I was starting to feel so wobbly in my technical skills. I was just like, I just wanna, I just wanna like put my headphones on and write software for a couple years. I got to do that for three months. So my hopes and dreams are on hold. <laughs> Um, I, I want to be a co- you know some of the easiest people to manage are people who have been managers some of the most wonderful people to have your team are people who have been co-founders because they're just so chill and so happy to it not be them anymore they're just like dude whatever you need from me and then they clock out at 5pm and go home you know and they're just happy as a clam with their wife and their daughters and I'm just like eh, ah, hate you now I, I I think that it's this is a it's just like being a manager, right? Like once you've been there, it's, the shine is off. You know, I, I, these, the last five years have been the hardest of my life. And I sacrificed my marriage. And it's just like, I'm going to be so stoked to be somebody's cog someday. You have no idea. <sighs>
2: Um, so the, the, the flip side, of it, I, I think I was also interested in kind of knowing is that I feel like a lot of the friends that I talk to who are engineers who want to start a company, they kind of have that same fear, I think that you mentioned a little bit in the beginning, where it's like, okay, if say I end up doing a more, you know, maybe CEO as a founder to kind of help out with the business side where I need to learn how to do sales, then it's going to be really tough, like, you know, three, four years, maybe it doesn't work out and then come back and, you know, how hireable I am, uh, am I like yeah. after all that? like do you have any sort of I guess advice because to me I think having gone through that like very quick uh, try, tried try my luck at starting a startup like it definitely gave me a lot of perspectives in terms of like yeah. what matters and how to think about problems on a high level such that it benefits the business from
0: you mm-hmm. know
2: like but I wanted to kind of give your like do you have any advice for people who are kind of in that position where like, first of
0: all if you're a dude you don't really have to worry about it like I really think this is mostly pathology that affects women because they're seen as so dubiously technical to start with uh, I've never seen a dude get put mostly Most people are just like, Oh wow, you tried to do a startup. Right. And, and that's so cool. Right. Like, I don't think you have to worry about it if you're, if you're male, I've never seen men get digged for it. You're just like, Oh yeah, you have a little bit, you know, you can brush up on your, your skills, but you know, I don't think you need to worry about it. Um, you know, starting a company is hard. There's not a lot of glamor to it. Um, I, I don't recommend it to anyone. It's really a, it's a stupid thing to do. Um, but, you know, people get the bug and they want to try it. They have an idea that they believe in. Only do it as long as you believe in what you're doing, right? Um, but if you believe in what you're doing, then you have to be willing to do whatever it takes. And, yeah, that means sales. That means marketing. And that means not being snobby about this shit, right? Like, I, I honestly think that we – one of the things that we did right at Honeycomb was be very vocal about how much we respected business people and the functions that they bring you know, like if, if an engineer expressed any snobbery about sales or marketing, it's instant out in our interview process. We, we don't hire people who don't look at their business counterparts as peers. And this is incredibly rare. And, and I think that it, like, it just rolls off of us and fumes when this is how we feel. So I think there's some retraining that you need to do. If you're starting a company, retrain yourself to really see the value and the necessity and, and, and the the glory in these things that we have been kind of taught to like shit on our entire careers. Um and, and like be part of the narrative that's pushing back about against you know sales being lesser.
2: Yeah, that's 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 really well said. Okay, Charity, we're we're done with all the easy questions. Now I have a very <gasps> hard questions for you next. Um, oh good. So we know that you're a very experienced podcaster. You have your own show, the Observability Podcast. We'll link it. I in thought the you channels.
0: were going to say but, we know I, you're very experienced at whiskey. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we we haven't figured out the shipping yet, so you have to gotcha, that. gotcha. Okay. Um, but, but Ronan and Austin and I, we just started, you know, we're complete noobs. So from mm. an experienced veteran podcaster to yeah. us toddler cast, uh, podcasters, <laughs> podcaster to podcaster, yeah, how yeah. would you rate our podcast on a scale of 1 <laughs> to 10? Been, There's no wrong answers.
0: This has been one of my two or three favorite podcasts of all time. So you guys are on a roll.
2: That was, uh, you know, to our listeners, that was not paid for. You know, yes. we, uh, not uh,
0: completely uh, spontaneous. And, I, and I, um, yeah, I I will say you have the edge on pretty much any other topic because I'm such a sucker for horror stories and production. So <laughs> I, sh- I showed up already pretty like, yeah, this is going to be a good one. <laughs> oh, awesome.
2: We, we appreciate that.
1: You
0: got my, uh, my sweet spot. <laughs>
2: I was hoping you say, like, oh, I'll give it a six, so then I can do the whole line about, oh, my mom, you know, kind of give it, like, a slightly better <laughs> score. But we'll, we'll save that joke for later. Before we wrap up, uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with our uh, listeners?
0: Um, we didn't talk about observability at all, which is really refreshing. Um, but, you know, uh, <laughs> if people have, you know, production problems, and who doesn't, um, you should check out Honeycomb because... Um, does it solve it's, it, If you have large systems, you know problems. Uh, you probably need observability. So, Honeycomb.io. Um, oh, and we have a really generous free tier, which is cool. Like you, you can run actual real production workloads on it and not pay for anything. So
1: nice. Oh, that's pretty cool.
0: And and ha, topical SLOs. <laughs> we have we we have um the only implementation of SLO that I have yet seen in the wild. Um, that that does it correctly. Like, according to the Google SRE book, where, you know, it's, it, which is cool because it means you can go from very high level, you know, the, the number burning down directly to, you know, which events are failing and what is different about them from the baseline events. And just at a glance, you can go, oh, it's all these errors are because of this one node and this one replica set that's doing blah, blah, blah. Or this, you know, it's, it's just super dope because you can go really quickly from high level to low level and get back to bed.
1: That sounds really awesome. Uh, One thing which I would just say is uh, we purposefully skipped the observability topic because we we know you have a podcast on it. Uh, You've wrote about this a lot, so we wanted to keep this a little interesting for you. Uh,
0: Yeah, this is great, man. I love it. I'm so glad you did. It's refreshing.
1: (laughs)
2: Thanks. Uh, Awesome. Thanks so much, Charity. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you. It's really great.
1: Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and learn more about us at softwaremisadventures.com. You can also write to us at hello at softwaremisadventures.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.